Hey everybody, this is a clip I had from last week's episode, uh, last live stream we did. That was all recorded live. After we do the actual episode, we usually start to go into the chat. So this is that segment where Lee and I just kind of went into the chat. If you are not yet on the email list for the chat, it's robertberger.com, link in the description of this episode, or this filler clip, or whatever we want to call it, bonus content. And once you're signed up for that, you will get emails when we are recording live, when we are, where we are recording live. So you too can join on some impromptu chat with us. It's usually after Scott goes to bed. It's a little late for Scott, you know, so it gets a little late night for him. So he gets scared, goes home. But uh, for the rest of you, if you think you can handle it, sign up for the, uh, the email list, get on that email list. So I will email you when we are recording. We got shit to get to. Yeah, so we got chat. Um. Okay, so we've been lagging. That all sucks. Leave for flight lessons. How much different is a Cherokee from a 172 uh, M or S? I don't know the M or S. I think S is like the newer stuff, like with the um, fuel-injected IO360s, I want to say. S P S P I don't know R one seventy two R I don't know my one seventy two that well. Um, all in all, like to me, like to you, a lot different. To me, a lot different for two different reasons. Um, I have a I've flown a lot of airplanes, and so and I've flown a lot, so I can see those differences. I can kind of pick apart those differences driving, you know, a Toyota Camry to a Honda Civic. Um, I can pick apart those differences like you could pick apart those differences. I'm able to do it in a plane. And maybe you can too. Maybe you can too. I'm not trying to be condescending. But from a learning standpoint, um, those differences, although in some senses are very minimal uh, as far as performance characteristics, what we more want to focus on from a flight training standpoint is handling characteristics which of course play into performance a little bit but it's it's really how um your muscle memory sight picture um the cockpit layout or flight deck layout um how that works for you can you adjust the seat to the same like like uh your uh one thing one thing is how close can you get the seat to the like for me I'm 5 foot 6 so I pretty much almost always have to have the seat all the way full forward for me to be able to like full deflection the rudder pedals and stuff and what how how that can be a pain is from a linear and from my flare and my landings I need to get the yoke at the stall speed in a certain range on the yoke. And so that play, how it integrates kind of with your shoulder muscles and in your, your arms and, and your chest and stuff. And your, I guess your back, there was a, there's a play there. And I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know anything. I just know that like that, where you reach stall in like that pivotal range where you're working it on, like on kind of a gusty, windy day that, that matters. And that is a seat position function. Where because you have a portion, you have a spot in your shoulder where your elbow is bent and everything is kind of in line. You have really good finite motor skills there. If you have, if you get to a point where you like, let's say you have really long legs but short arms, kind of like if, if I'm 
making some shit up here. You're going to be like kind of out of place. And of course you'd get used to it, but you'd get used to it in that airplane. Then you, when you go switch airplanes, things are a little disjointed and don't quite line up the same way they did. And you have to relearn and maybe you can eventually get as good. Maybe you can get better. It's just that it just takes some adjustment. And that's the biggest thing I've found is seat position, sight picture. Yeah, we all know that's important. But what I think is completely downplayed or completely glossed over is seat position for how your the like your muscle memory, for lack of a better term, works with that um, working it on like on a gusty, windy, uh, and and full stall to a lesser extent. I think um, how how they play. I I hope that somewhat helps. But I don't I don't think you'll have any trouble doing it. But handling characteristics is what we would worry about there. Not performance is gonna be similar, but handling characteristics will be different enough at an entry level type stage that it'd throw you off a little bit. But 10, 15 hours, you're fine, probably. Maybe less than that. What do you uh, Rob, any any input on that or I think it's I don't think it matters between those the two making models, but as far as like training in, I do think it's beneficial though to learn in one plane yes. and master, try to master one make and model first. And then that makes your learning process, I feel like, would be so much simpler. And then, yeah, streamlined, right? Yeah. Cause efficient. Yeah. Cause you're, you're not battling the, nuances of different the the small nuances of different makes and models early in your yes. flying journey I, yeah. I just feel like you should take that off the table i i had the 150 that i did all the, all my training i'd flown like i'd held the controls and and whip planes around and did little flying um prior to me taking lessons and a bunch of different stuff but when it came down to learning how to fly with an instructor, logging the time, you know, officially, that was all in a 150. And so I, I learned that plane very well. And then I got my private and then I went over to 172s for my instrument. And it was a learning curve for that airplane. But I think that was a good point in time. Maybe I would have mastered, maybe I would have gotten some hours in a 172, 2020 hindsight before I started adding the instrument stuff in it. So it wasn't like instrument and learning the 172 at the same time. But that transition yeah. to the 172 then, it's like everything I can do, okay, this is this is different this way and this way and this way. And I, you know, the nose feels heavy and like the speeds are are faster and there's all this different stuff that once you have that solid reference of the first plane and now you're on the second plane, it's just it's easier than bouncing back and forth when you're so new to flying. And then you you master that second plane and then you start adding a third one. And I've heard it's like languages. I, I have not mastered multiple languages, but I've heard it's similar with languages. Like once you learn a second language Scott hasn't mastered one. No. And it, it makes you better. Then you go to like do a third, and that third is gonna be a lot easier to learn than the second language you picked up. And then once you have a few in I Apparently, people say it's really easy at that point to pick up languages. Um, but kind of using that analogy for airplanes, once and we call those people robots. Yes, once by the way, once you have 
experience. C-3PO. Once you've mastered a handful of planes in the general class, I should say, and you're not bouncing up in class, but you're staying in the same class and you have several airplanes you've mastered, make some models, it makes it easier to jump in another airplane in that class and then go fly it. There's not going to be that learning curve. 100%. You're like bracketing. Well, bottom line, what you're doing is you're bracketing. You're like, oh, I've flown something that is similar to this. And then you just kind of like bias towards what those handling characteristics were like that. So once you have these this foundation of different airplanes and you have this experience to kind of pick from, it's like, oh, a Grumman Tiger. Well, I've flown, uh, you know, a, a Diamond. You know, so I have this weird castering nose gear and it's kind of slippery and these things. And you can start to like pick and choose like, oh, yeah, I've flown something like this. And the same thing with landing. You stay in one airplane. And I use this analogy often with students. This is the same analogy as like you're coming in on a windy day. Well, yeah, I haven't flown in 12.3 knots before, but I've flown in 10 and I've flown in 15 so it's somewhere in the middle. So I'm going to treat it as such, and I, I'm going to do this. How I'm going to like work with it, and yeah, that sounds like a really mathematical and robotic way of it to handling something. But it is kind of that simple. You want to get the calm wind day shit down. You want to get the really windy, gusty crosswind days down too, and then all the other days are in the middle. And that's how airplanes are. You can fly this. Grumman Tiger, Cheetah, whatever, and you can go fly this 172 or this 182, and you have a, a, a wide range of handling characteristics. And with time, you know, I'm not saying do this at, you know, one hour you fly a Cheetah and the next hour you fly a 182. That's not going to work out for you. It's going to be completely pointless. But over a couple hundred hours, you have 10 hours in a Cheetah, 10 hours in 182 type thing. You have a wide range. This is similar. A Cherokee is somewhere in between. And, you know, well, 172 is somewhere in between. And 150 is somewhere in between. Is what I, is what I would say. Yeah. It, it's once, once you pick up, once your brain makes those connections. I realized this mm-hmm. when I was learning to, to drive boats. My dad taught me in like a 20, 20-ish foot center console. And for a while, that was like, I could dock that boat pretty well. I could maneuver that boat in the marina pretty well. Um, and then I ended up getting a 10-foot inflatable after, the, like, during that process. Added that to, I got really good at that because that was kind of like my designated boat. So I, was, I could take that out by myself and run that all the time when I was, like, I think 10, 11 years old. And then... Over the years, I started adding different boats, like a cigarette boat and a larger outboard type boats. And it's just once you have enough different boats in your arsenal that you've picked up and figured out, I can jump on most boats that are less than 50 feet and pretty much run it. Um I'm not going to be able to look amazing while I I can't put it right Mm -hmm. where I want it and like show off when I'm coming into a marina and put it right in the slip, you know, where everyone's like, oh man, that guy knows what he's doing. I I can't do that with it, but I'm confident I'm not going to screw anything up with it, if that makes sense. Like I'm going to be able to run that boat, get it in and out of the slip and, and go and, 
even if I've never been on that type of boat before. That's how I am with planes. Yeah. Except I can do awesome landings, though. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Let's Let's just throwing that out there. Of course. And I've proven that a few times, actually. But yeah, but there's... Yeah, no, yeah. It it compounds, I feel like, your skill level once you have different makes and models under your belt. But that's very... Yeah, because you're drawing across a wider range of experiences. Yeah. You're well-rounded. You can you can adapt like oh this is a little bit different in this way so this is how I'm going to anticipate or counteract or compensate for these characteristics right is that mm-hmm. true somewhat yeah like you're I t- mm. you, I'm on the steering or you know in a plane you're on the yoke and throttles on a boat steering wheel and throttles and you're the boat like you're shifting it and I can just once those gears going in and out forward, neutral, reverse, and I'm feeling how, okay, that my mind's picking up how that boat feels real quick versus when you're brand new to it. It's like, whoa, it's all over the place and, and freaky. And same thing with airplanes. Once you've, once you've felt the flare, like, and mastered a few different planes and how they feel on landing, like a Piper versus a Cessna versus mm-hmm. a Mooney you know, versus whatever. Yeah. And it's yeah. like your brain's making all those connections where it's like, okay, this is, like you said, you're drawing from diff- vastly different experiences and you can pick it up faster once you've, yeah. once you've gotten in and out of more planes. Let me take it in this direction. What about the different personalities of, and actually I have this written down while we were talking about the stall stuff. We just never really got to it. Um, Cause I wanted Ryan to weigh in, but here we are. Um, one thing, um, what do you think? Like you're going to take, you're doing all your training in a Cherokee or a 172 and you got a, whatever, 200 pound instructor, you're 200 pounds. That's okay, whatever. That's kind of probably pretty close to average conditions. You know, I know you, you know, that's probably average. And you let's say you have a big instructor or examiner. And they're going to really skew things one direction towards nose heavy. Obviously, they're sitting right next to you, you know, up, up front in a small uh, you know, four place, two place. Well, two place doesn't matter. I want I want some center of gravity envelope to work with. Like, let's say you have like a, you're used to a 200 pound instructor, and now you're going to go up with a 350 pound examiner. What do you think? So we've talked about airplane to airplane. What do you think about the handling characteristics, the duality? or, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type personalities of an airplane at your kind of your normal operating weight versus a gross weight type situation. How do you think that plays in and how, I mean, have you given any thought to maybe how a student getting ready for a check ride should tackle that? Like, let's say they know they have a DPE that's a big guy. I would say- You given any thought to that ever? I- Should they try and train at that weight at least, get as close as they can to that weight- I know they can't really simulate that center of gravity, you know, unless the instructor next to you is going to have cases of oil in his lap. Okay, like a 
crash test dummy that weighs that amount. Strap them in in the yeah, seat. Lead, a lead, yeah, lead, a lead filled crash test dummy. There was that factory that How? made the crash test dummies right by uh, eight eight Delta yeah. there for a little while. That's I don't know if they're no, still there. Aren't they still there? Maybe I don't know. I haven't. Uh, yo, yeah, they're still there. They're still there. I haven't lived up there in nearly a decade, but okay. So yeah, get one of the go get one of those in the weight and strap it in and no i haven't thought about that going up with a heavy examiner versus your instructor i've thought about this in the case of you just have an instructor and Mm -hmm. then you do a first solo that instructor's not in that plane anymore so i think at that point in your training there's no way around that you can't simulate the weight of no instructor until there's no instructor. So every every pilot in their Yeah. Unless you're yeah. low on fuel depending on the plane and stuff. You could. You could, but yeah. Yeah. So I forget Don gave me a pep talk right before my first solo of like how the plane is going to feel different. I forget exactly what he said, but he kind of walked me through what to expect a little bit now that he's not oh, sitting yeah. in that right seat of the 150. And that, you know, I don't know how much Don weighed, but it you know, he wasn't a bigger big guy. He wasn't a small guy. Just a a normal adult. He's probably 170 pounds. Yeah, 180 pounds, maybe. And then, so yeah, it was it flew different when he was on there. But whatever that pep talk he gave me, kind of nothing that happened when I was in the flare and stuff surprised me. Everything it's going to want to do everything on takeoff. It's going to want to do everything sooner on landing. Everything later. It's that simple. But like that shouldn't maybe necessarily shouldn't put you at ease. But what I would say is like in a 150 in any airplane, I tend to think of these pounds, like what a person weighs, what the fuel weighs. I tend to think of in what kind of percentage of useful load change was what happened. So like in a 150, you lose 160 pounds. That's freaking that's 20% of your useful load change yeah. from one landing or one takeoff to the next. Obviously the bigger the airplane, the less fluctuation you worry more about fuel fuel will quickly in a jet in any, any jet, anything that burns jet fuel, you're going to quickly fuel is going to quickly outpace anything you do with passengers quickly. Um, so that that's fuel is more what we worry about than passengers. But in like these light GA airplanes where it's minimal fuel, but you can put, you know, two people, four people, six people in it, the 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 people add up quicker than the fuel does. And that is a this land, and that's one thing like Jeff, Ryan, me, we know really, really well flying the islands. You're coming over, you're landing at Putin Bay with six people, nine people, what have you, and you're coming back empty. The airplane is completely changed in its performance capability because you just offloaded nine times, let's call it 200. Like, I mean, that's a lot of weight in terms of your percentage of gross of a uh, useful load. That's a hundred percent of your useful load, but almost, almost 80%. The rest would be fuel and baggage baggage. So I, th- I tend to think about the fluctuation in your useful load percentage. Um, which I mean is not perfect, but that that seem, that ends up being a bigger number normally. So it kind of um, to prove a point works out. Yep. So in a one fifty, that's a huge. I mean, you probably only have four hundred pounds of useful load, four to five hundred pounds of useful load. 
So you go have a hundred, a 200 pounder get out. I mean, that that's a big deal when you only had 500 pounds to work with. Yeah. But totally different airplane. But back to our point where you're saying once you have multiple data points, it's easier. So if you consider that with your instructor and then you have time soloing and learn how the plane flies solo. I mean, as a student pilot, you got to, even if you're in the same make and model plane, you now have a couple of different reference Mm -hmm. points that you are starting to master so that maybe if you have that big fluctuation from your instructor versus your DPE weight-wise, I feel like it wouldn't be that big of a deal as long as you're within, obviously, weight and balance and everything. Well, remember back a few episodes ago, I don't remember what it was, Scott was talking about, you know, he went over to Kelly's and he had fuel and he had a case of beer that he didn't think he was going to bring back and he had his scooter, you know, which is battery powered. So I had some, you know, battery packs, it was, you know, and, and his wife and um, like it surprises people. Most people are so used to flying it like a, at a typical operating weight, which is in my like GA experience, like for just normal stuff, you're normally, let's call it 300 pounds below your um, maximum takeoff weight, which equates to 30% of your useful load. So you're operating a 60% of your useful load. Okay. Which maybe, again, I know that I'm not thinking about it. I know that that's not the correct way to present it, but I I use it for kind of like shock value. Um, I know it'd be more about a percentage of max takeoff weight. I get that. But for shock value to illustrate the point for a, to, to illustrate the point of the magnitude of change, I guess. You're 30% below your 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 max takeoff weight for your normal day in, day out flying. It's one or two people in a four-person airplane and you're topped off. Well, then you go topped off and you add two more people. Full fuel, if it can do it. So this is a 182, a Piper Dakota, things like that, that would be able to function like this. you know. But either way, you get to your gross weight and that extra 30% more weight that we were talking about. In terms of useful load, it is a very different airplane. When you go and you take that and you put it on a hot day, these fair weather flyers who are, oh, I haven't flown in three months. I'm barely current. And now the last time I flew was November. Now I'm flying in July. And it's, I know the math didn't work there. I I was wondering. I'm trying to go. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. But I'm trying to go cold weather, good performance. You're light. Now you're going, it's hot bad performance and you're heavy those i mean you have a totally different again a duality of personalities that can catch you and i remember i had a student and i taught him to fly in in the i finished his private up in the summer actually i think this was over two years actually like he was only up for like the summers or something and so he got his private and he goes up topped off takes people for a ride maybe not topped off I mean, his weight and balance was, was right. He was fine. So it probably wasn't topped off because he took four people with him and I don't think any of them were small. So yeah, he was he was, he was was fine, but he was basically at gross weight. He was like, oh man, I, I never really realized. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's 
It's like I, that made me like I know we talked about. It. I know we did. We talked about weight and balance. I know we did weight and balance. I mean, I know all that, and we talked about the performance of density, altitude, and whatever. But like, it just I didn't drive home. I didn't summarize the points adequately enough to drive the point home. Practically speaking, we talked about more of the theory of it than we did of the actual. Like you were talking about, Rob. Like this, is how it's gonna feel, dude. Yeah. Like you can talk about, oh, you know, it's gonna. Okay, it's, it's not gonna climb at seven hundred twenty feet per minute. Anyways, it's gonna climb at seven hundred or six hundred and fifty feet per minute. Like, okay, how does that feel, though? It's what is the difference in feel? It's hard to conceptualize a concept like that until you are in the airplane. You've got a little bit of time in. It's not a bunch of time at, at this level typically, you know. But you got like. 50, 60, 70 hours in it that you did your private. Now you're t- going to go up yourself. And it's hard to conceptualize how poorly that airplane you're used to performing a certain way, it's going to be the exact same airplane and it's just going to perform like garbage. And garbage. until you experience that yourself, it's hard to conceptualize that based off of, you know, charts and conversations yeah. and math. It's like, until you right. until you go up to your max gross weight on a hot day and actually push the throttle forward and you're expecting to be off the runway by now and you're not and then you get it off the runway and you're climbing like you know you're barely climbing and yeah. until you experience something like that it's it's just theory it's it's hard to yeah it's it's like once you land from that flight then you're like Oh, all that stuff I learned makes sense now. Uh, very important to run those numbers because yes. I'd want to make sure the next time I'm in that situation, uh, when it's performing like garbage, I've ran all the numbers and I know, okay, it's performing like garbage, but I know it's going to you know, get me. I'm going to be able to climb. I'm going to be able to clear, clear obstacles those trees. and all that, yeah. all that jazz and make totally. it off the runway in this runway length versus my weight and the density altitude and all that stuff but that's one i think negative to like doing a crash course let's get our let's get my license in three months two months you don't have you either learn high density altitude situations and thunderstorm avoidance and you know kind of summertime weather or you learn icing and stuff. You need to have a longer if you don't have a longer training run then it behooves you to probably go up with an instructor or, you know, a checkout pilot, check pilot, what have you, or somebody like a mentor type role to go up on those conditions with you um, in the opposing season. And it's not a bad idea to stagger. Like when you do flight reviews, you know, revisit these concepts. I know like when I go do training, not this one, I, not the one I have like in a couple of days on Thursday, but for my long one, that's a week long. We do, we have hot weather, cold weather days. And you deal with the difference and it's totally, totally screws your mind because it's hot outside in Dallas because I do it in like September, October, but like it's cold weather day. Like when I get up and I'm having breakfast at the hotel, I got to start getting my mind and like, okay, it's cold. I'm thinking about de-icing, anti-icing, you know, all these things as though I'm going to fly, which you would be in that mode if you were there, but you're not. So it's really messes with you. But that is something that would probably be really good for you. It, you know, you just get your private license, 
experience the opposite somehow with a mentor or a check pilot of some form to get your head in the space uh, for those considerations. And not just performance. Again, like I just said, anti-ice or thunderstorm avoidance, um, slippery runways, you know, controllability factors, breaking action reports, all of the things that come into play when you're worried about the winter season versus the summer season. You know, we look at a book and it's 15 degrees Celsius and 2992. Well, yeah, but it's not. Sometimes it's 30 degrees Celsius and 2982. How is the airplane going to behave? It's going to behave like shit, like Rob said. Yeah. And you want to know that. And one way is to feel it. And this kind of goes to, uh, I remember Barbara had asked it in the chat. Um, we'll wrap it up with this. I can't find the actual question. But uh, say it again, Barb, if you want. It was um, banner towing. Don't you usually fly slow uh-huh. flight in banner towing? And it's well, yeah, it's it's pretty slow flight. But an interesting thing with the banner towing, it's not just regular slow flight. When you have the banner on the back of the plane, you can't get into a spin. You can't really stall the airplane in the traditional sense um, because you've got this anchor of a banner pulling your tail back. So like it, it's, it's a weird feeling and until you actually get some time, it's again hard to explain um, what that's like, but it's, you can do things you can't do aerodynamically in any other airplane situation when you have a banner on the back. Because your tail is always, it's going to be held there by a cable, pulled straight back by however much. So you have some stability in a sense. Oh, yeah. We'd, um, it was demonstrated by my instructor, Vic. We were on the beach. We're going up Miami Beach, towing a banner. And, um, I forget what she was trying to demonstrate. And I think she wanted me to slow up the banner. Because I was going too fast. And when you fly it too fast, it goes, um, the banner goes from like up and down. So it's displaying properly yeah. to the beach. It goes, yes. um, like a, it starts magic carpeting, we called it. Cause, Makes sense. Because of the how, it, if you're flying it too fast, it goes magic carpet. And it's like Aladdin's magic carpet instead of displaying properly. So you got to get real slow for that actually to turn up and like display properly, like up and down. Yes. So you can read yes. the left side of it. Which typically, if you watch a banner plane, you can read the left side of it. You can't really read the right side of it unless it's a V-tail, which is very expensive, and most people don't do that. Um, but anyway, what, where, where was I? You stall speed. Yeah. And... So we're we're going down the beach, and I wasn't going I wasn't going slow enough because it's unnerving. You see, you see the airspeed indicator, you know, reading thirty knots while you're five hundred feet above the beach. It, uh, you know, it's a little unnerving. Uh, so basically, she's just like, pull the stick back. And um, I'm like, okay. So I add throttle. She's like, no, chop. Throttle completely idle. Pull the stick completely back and just hold it back. This is 500 feet above South Beach. We, probably, we might get had a little altitude going because I was going too fast and climbing up a little bit probably. But basically, pull it, pulled the stick straight back and held it there with no throttle, like six, seven hundred feet. And the airplane nose just starts to go down, 
and just it kind of settles and doesn't it doesn't stall, doesn't buff it, doesn't do anything because that banner is holding that airplane, and you just kind of go into this right. descent uh, with throttle idle, stick all the way back, ele- you know, pulling the elevator nose up all the way back as hard as you can go yeah. to the stop. Yeah, and it's just makes sense, and it's it's just. It just goes down to like a nose descending type attitude is all it does. It doesn't stall because you got that cable holding your tail in place. So right. you can do right. you can do things um, with a banner on the back that you just can't do in any other situation. And that's what kills a lot of banner pilots because they'll spend two, three, four hours towing that banner, defying the laws of aerodynamics, and then they don't get their head space into the f- fact that, okay, I got to go back to reality once I pull that Schweitzer release. So they're, you know, they're in, they're over the banner box in the corner of the airport with their ground crew going to catch the banner and they pull the Schweitzer release, which opens up and drops the whole rig on the ground so that they don't have a banner on and their airplane's not set, it's not configured and they're doing something that, you know, the banner was making it magic land where they could defy aerodynamics and now they don't yeah. have that banner anymore and they'll they enter a spin and and a lot of accidents from what I've was taught happen in that uh release stage right after they release the banner because they they get so used to being able to do stuff with that banner on the back and then as soon as the banner's not there you can't do that stuff anymore. If that makes sense. Man, that's scary. Yeah. No thanks. No, no it was thanks. terrifying. It's a terrifying flying part of my flying journey yeah uh barb said a little bit ago my cfi told me he had to bring a weight on one of his check rides to balance out the weight of a heavy ish dpe and that's pretty much exactly barb um what i was trying to describe is you have students we were talking about the difference between different airframes and now we're like these airplanes do have multiple personalities you just kind of have to trust me on it you're normally operating light now you're going to be operating basically at max gross. And, you know, if you have to go fly somewhere, you know, and then you don't know how long your check ride is going to be. And you, this guy has some hot spots and you're, you've already done a weight. Like, let's say you've done the weight and balance the night before. Well, you need to make sure that that's going to be true to what you're doing. Cause you don't want to like do it in front of the guy and like maybe mess up. You rather have it done and accurate. And so you're adding fuel and now like you want to protect the integrity of what your pre-flight planning has what you've done already bottom line and that that's that's what i'm getting at is like now you have like you got 40 50 hours of flying time and now we're going to go sit and do a check ride at a very differently handling airplane than what you're accustomed to with your 200 pound potentially 200 pound uh flight instructor or 150 pound flight instructor maybe you're 150 pounds and the instructor's 150 pounds well, now you're 150 pounds and you have a 400 or 350 pound dude. Vastly different, not only weight wise, but center gravity wise, which may play in a, a much more important part in handling characteristics, I would say. But how do you simulate how, how do you simulate center gravity? That'd be very, very difficult to put it that far forward, if not impossible. So I think like the next best thing is like simulate that weight at least. Um that that's my thing. That's where I was going. So yeah, you ha- you may have to play that game. It's not uncommon to have to add weight to the back. 
Uh, and that's why knowing, getting that gouge from your uh, C- CFI on the various DPEs you're going to fly with, so you can start running those numbers. And although it may sound like an exercise in futility, it does get you more in that headspace. You're you're running the numbers. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about the effects on it. I think it's all I think it's all worthwhile um, to to start going down that path earlier rather than later. You don't want to be doing that the night before the check ride. Then you're calling your instructors like, "Oh man, dude, I need four cases of oil in the back to offset the weight of this guy." You know, that's 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 what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Yep. And Barbara says, wouldn't that bring your nose up higher if you have weight on the tail? I'm assuming you're talking about the banner. Uh, the banner's acting straight back uh, at all times. It's not really a weight. There, there's, probably, there's, right. uh, there's a little bit of weight, I guess. I'm sure there is because the banner does weigh. But compared to your forward speed and the aerodynamics of the banner, um, that cable or the, the, the line, the rope, um, that's it's pulling you straight it's pulling straight back all the time you actually part of the like say your your switcher release fails it never happened to me but we trained for it to where you go to pull to drop the banner and it doesn't release it's stuck so you got to bring that that uh bring it in for landing with the banner on the back the procedure was to basically fly the approach to the runway obviously let the tower know what's going on and that you're going to shut down the runway once you plop on it for a little bit. And you basically, you descend rapidly, so that banner is above you, and then the goal is to then do your flare and land the plane before the banner touches the ground, is the idea. And then, yeah, it's got a ton of drag. Um, Living Well Healthcare. Yeah, that's it's all drag. It's all all the banner is just. You can feel it once once you do your pick, and you're taking it up and and pulling it up off of the ground that your ground crew set up for you. It's it's like this. It's yeah, it's a weird feeling. It's hard to explain. Where did Lee go? Did he signal that like he he was leaving? Um, I don't really. I was going to try to wrap this up, so it's going to like come back and. I don't want to end it without him, but then we end it right when he gets back. Um, just vanished. Okay. Screw that banner stuff. Give me the islands, two miles visibility, snow squalls, and wind gusting to 35 knots. Um, yeah. I would rather do that than, than banner tail. I, I was not cut out for banner towing. I, it lasted a couple months, and I'm like, this is not for me, and I left. Uh, Kami's got Lee. Maybe. It's possible. Um, Looking back up at the chat here. Da, the Ruskies. Got the Lee. Barbara said. Uh, okay, that looks like... Yeah, we got some viewers here. I'm gonna wait till Lee gets back. Light up the chat if you uh, if you have something to say before we sign off here. Oh, I hear him. I hear him. He's coming back in. Just abandon the stream. We thought the commies got you. 
No, almost. I had to fight him off. Had to fight him off. Yeah. I bribed him with some vodka. That's always, always usually works. Yeah. Uh, where were we? I mean, we got, we're fluctuating. We're like, we actually increased. We got up to nine there. So I like, I don't, Yeah. I didn't know where you were. No. I just really had to pee. Yeah, yeah. I had to, well, I was, I was ready to wrap this up actually, just because. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's um, fine. That's fine. We did get a drop actually when nine o'clock hit because of, I think maybe people, we reminded people. No, they wanted to go see the State of the Union. Yeah, that's what I think. I totally forgot that that was even on tonight. Um, I don't know how you could. I don't know. The event of the century. I I run this show and I basically work two jobs, so I don't watch things oh, good. anymore. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah, um, we're going to wrap this up here. Thanks for everybody who, who hung out till the end. Uh, yeah, thank you guys. That's all we got. It's unfortunate Ryan was uh, not able to have good internet connection at his hotel. That's hit or miss. Lee's been in that situation more than once. What um, are you going to do? Yeah, well, when Lee is, it's a, a main host goes down. It's more of an issue than a guest, as much as we love to have Ryan on. Um, we worked with it as best we could. Yeah, yeah, we did all right. My guess. But, um, okay. Barbara says she's watching it and it's not that good. Uh, well, no, we we know we know it's not that good. That's that's the funny part. Barbara's on Barbara's on our page, I think. So I was wondering if not that I want to risk a rabbit hole. So I was wondering, living he- healthcare. I'm just going to start calling this user healthcare. Yeah, I don't so I, really like that you're using so like a company name. That's what Scott like Scott does when he replies. It just shows up Boris Cycle. It's it's and he's does it really? Yeah, he's a host. I don't like that. I don't like that. So I was wondering if you feel the buffet of a stall and don't go nose down with a power on stall, will you loop? Is that? No. 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 Uh, the airplane aerodynamically speaking, you're, there's airflow separation, meaning basically air can't make that bend over top of the wing, meaning it's no longer going to lower the pressure, which is kind of what we see as lift, right? So what that means is the center of gravity is going to basically tilt forward. Hopefully, our center of gravity windows on the airplane are such that the nose will drop to restore that smooth airflow over the over the airfoil, and then you'll resume flying again. Maybe if you have no power, It'll be momentarily, then it'll break, and you'll just do this oscillation all the way down to the ground. It'll just be slow down to the ground. You won't, yeah, you won't ever, you won't loop because the no, the center gravity is always going to try and hit the ground first, and that's going to be ahead. The center gravity on a, if you are loaded correctly within the limits of the airplane, the center gravity will always be ahead of the center of pressure, which is the center of lift. And so that means the center of gravity will always tilt down. So that's the nose, basically, will point down to restore smooth airflow. So if you do nothing, if you just hold that yoke back in your lap, get it to a, it deep into a stall, the nose will break over down if it's loaded correctly, and you will restore smooth airflow over the wing. It'll regain flying. Uh, the angle of attack will drop, I guess is what I mean to say, and you'll, rest- you'll fly, and you'll just keep this oscillation going. Am I? Is that a decent enough ex- explanation Rob uh, sounds good to me yeah okay and we are yeah we're, we're coming up on two hours I always try to do that hard limit just because every minute longer becomes yeah um, we got 10 people in now we have at, that's the I problem know. I'm watching this like the chat numbers are like, I, I don't want to give it up this is my favorite part I know but, uh, yeah, 
we're hitting the two hour <sighs> mark. We uh, I really try to shut it down for that. So thanks again, everybody showed up. Yes, uh, thank you guys. We're we're cutting this. We're cutting this. Take care. Sorry. Until next it's time. It's painful. It's painful for us too. All right. Later. See you guys. Now the awkward. I'm getting better at how to Barbara, shut it I think down we right get away. It. Right away. You got it. Right there. Okay. Done. Just in time for me to say that. Cool. There's eleven. There's 